0: going to uh, have the first of the Parmy talks next week on generosity, (coughs) Uh, but this week I knew would be um, not so well attended because of the inaugural, so uh, I wanted to sort of have a week in which I didn't need to prepare so that I could also watch the (laughs) (laughs) festivities on TV, so I thought a a Q&A would be a nice... uh, a nice occasion, a nice session to have here. So, are there any questions or comments or dialogues or anything that people would like to have explained with a little more depth and understanding? <clears throat> yes. I described my concept and my notion of what faith is at least in the context of what I've
1: learned in the last
0: couple of years. Okay, the question has to do with uh, the difference between faith and hope. Um, and I read Baslav Havel's definition of hope and uh, how I understand his uh, definition is uh, that there's a buoyancy of spirit uh, when you know something is true it's like the dharma the dharma gives an enormous sense of hope doesn't it Uh, but it's not hope that everything will turn out right because often things don't turn out right but there's a deep abiding sense of it being true and therefore, worth, worth investing energy in. Hmm? And so, um, when we invest energy in something that we know to be true, regardless of the circumstances of how it turns out or even whether anyone else listens to it, it doesn't, it doesn't dissuade us uh, to, keep, um, uh, to keep an intentionality in moving that thing forward. Because when you look at it uh, in terms of the present problems of today's world, you see that the understanding of Dharma is really the only thing that can eventually um, create a an, uh, some a, a salvation for us as a species and for the world at large. Um, and so uh, regardless of whether people don't refuse to listen to it or whatever, still, you know, it's the only thing that makes sense. So you just keep moving it forward. Right? So it's not based upon uh, uh, you know, this, the level of success that it's having publicly or how popular it is. It's just you to know it's true. So that's, that's what I think he means by hope, which is very different than optimism. You know, Gee, I hope things go well for me. It's not that sort of blind wishing. Faith then, is something uh, different than that as I perceive it. Uh, faith is... Um, uh, well, there are, there are different levels of faith. One level of faith is what most of us know faith to be, and that's kind of a faith a bel- faith in a belief system. Faith that something uh, is true because we've been told about it, a blind faith. And most of us were... Um, led in that direction in our religious training when we were small. But Dharma faith is something different. As you start realizing what and how life really is and how the mind and body really work, there's a kind of a conviction and confidence comes in being able to know that it's workable. Right? It's not based upon blind faith. It's based upon verified Something that you verified to be true. And that level of faith is known as ver- verified faith. <coughs> and uh, it's because uh, you have seen it work in your life, and it doesn't need, you don't need to argue it with somebody, whereas in blind faith, you might argue it because it would be one conviction versus another. But in verified faith, you just know that this is. How things are, and so you just you have a lot of confidence in that truth. Now there's another level of faith that occurs, and this final the final um, step, final step of faith, where uh, you don't know that something is true necessarily. But you know that you can't continue in the way that you have been going because it's too painful to sustain that. And so you walk, you're willing to do anything. And so you you take a blind, you take a a blind step into what you don't know, not because you're sure that something's going to catch your foot, but because you can't, you can't. there's no going back. You can't keep doing the same things you're doing. So you, so, I was once on retreat and I was trying to figure out what faith was. <clears throat> and so I was doing walking meditation and in one of the steps I was taking, uh, I had lost, there was no concept in my walking meditation. So I, I lost the concept of foot or ground. And I took a step and I wasn't sure because I had suspended The concept whether there was anything that was actually going to catch my foot, but I took the step anyway, uh, and something caught my foot, and I thought, "Well, that's faith." What I just did there—you just you have faith in the unknown. You have faith that um, not that something will turn out okay, but that uh, the only way to go is forward, Hmm? and that's a different. You see? It's like when you realize that what's keeping you uh, in a kind of uh, contracted space is your fear. Now, you don't know what you will be or how you'll act when you move outside of your fear. But you know you can't stay in that contracted space of fear. So you risk, not knowing what the result is going to be, you risk moving outside of your fear even though you have no certainty of how you will be or what the actions or whether anything will even catch you once you take a step out of your fear. So that's, that's the faith that ultimately drives the practice. Okay. So, yeah. This is uh, not working. <laughs> I'm not sure. Okay, let's try it like this. Any other? Yeah. There was somebody in the. Yes. I noticed that I avoid violent
1: movies and upsetting news to protect myself. And I'm
0: wondering about the wisdom of all of those decisions. You uh, avoid things like uh, violent movies to protect yourself? (coughs) Uh huh. Well, uh, um, there is a a time in practice when uh, simplifying your life, uh, avoiding certain people like friends who pull you down, because you have a sense in yourself that you're not strong enough to sustain your new growth of spirit, your new value system, your new direction. And so you hang around people who you know will reinforce the direction you're going. And uh, that's Sangha, often. Or uh, you just avoid things that you know your mind isn't strong enough to work with. And that's skillful, skillful avoidance. Uh, it's not wrong. In fact, almost everyone's practice has phases in which that's a, the appropriate thing to do. And at some point, you'll have enough confidence this little plant that's growing will become, you know, a solid uh, plant that doesn't need the same kind of cultivated nurturance that it did in the beginning. And uh, when it becomes hardy enough uh, you can take away the little fence around it. And there's also some confidence of you being able to stray outside of any ways that you restrict your life to protect it before and you can um, <coughs> open it up to sort of a, a kind of a free form. And at that point, uh, you're willing to go back into your uh, family of origin <laughs> and to dialogue with them. And sometimes people have to stay outside that circle for a while because they know it's just too strong of a pull, too, the condition is too strong. But you begin so that you begin to test Your confidence and the strength of your uh, dharma uh, in more and more uh, gross ways. So you'll put yourself in the in the uh, the aim of some of those things that are harder for you to work with, but because for you because it's important for there to be no conditionalities in dharma that I'm not I'm not doing this in order for me not to be hurt that eventually we have to be strong enough that we hold whatever comes at us, right? But in the beginning, we're not. And so it makes sense in the beginning to <coughs> do what you think you can, hang around people who add to your value system, and uh, if some movies are a little strong for you, don't go to them. Just restraint. That's I think that's um, skillful restraint. So I think you're wise in doing that. But you can also get kind of encrusted in there. So you want to be careful you don't get too encrusted and too um, opinionated <coughs> that this is not good and if it's not good for me, it's not good for anybody. I mean, you can start moving out in that direction, you know, and you become moralistic. and You find yourself getting tighter and tighter and the Dharma is supposed to make it looser and looser and then something's not working quite, quite right. For us. Yes, sir. <coughs> Uh, do I have any suggestions for a uh, practice that feels stale or habitual? Can you say a little more about what you mean by that?
1: Well, when, um, you know, when I first started practicing, you know, I think it was just kind of determination. Yes. Yes. Uh, so
0: uh, he says that um, in the beginning there was a, quite a bit of determination in getting himself to the pillow and sitting, and then as it w- went on a little bit there was a sort of a watering down of that intention and a little bit of laziness that came in, and and uh, not quite the same resolve as there was in the beginning to get the mind focused. And what, what you're losing there, there's something very important. <coughs> as long as it feels like you're moving towards something, you know, that you're really, we'll really try hard, won't we? And uh, we will, as long as we feel like we're getting something out of it, we'll put in the effort for it. And for a while, uh, we hear that it's very important to be disciplined in the sitting. You're not going to crank the car so that the motor starts unless you keep doing that uh, you know trimming the key and so we do that for a while but then there's kind of a lost expectation in there that after a while we've put in our time and we aren't getting back uh, the expectation uh, our expectations aren't being met so the first thing I would ask is is there an expectation that you had of the practice that isn't being fulfilled you're feeling that you're only showing up a little you're not showing up wholeheartedly, right yeah. right and, and so um, you're questioning that and wondering why your practices are working and you're giving the answer right that I mean it's going to work directly proportional to the ability your ability to show up for it sure. now what happens is that we find our motivation or intention, uh, to be um, divided. We have part of ourselves that would love, uh, you know, to acquire the states of mind and to get the accomplishments that we hear in some of the books we read. And that we are divided in our intention because we still we, we may feel ourselves being lazy and we just don't feel like putting forth the effort or we may, still want a lot of things in our life and we feel like if we give any more effort we're going to have to give up something and we're not willing to give up something yet. So we just kind of hedge on our bet and putting forth our our, um, our greater urgency. or well, we don't feel the urgency of why we even need to practice at all. You see, this is a, a question of motivation. And I, mean, I can't really solve that question of motivation. I can't motivate you. You have to motivate Yourself, You have to see the reasons why the practice is vital to you. And you can do that in a, in a number of ways. One is that you can see that the way you're living isn't fulfilling and never will be. But in order for you to see that, you have to show up for your life sufficiently so that you see that the expectations you want from your life aren't being fulfilled. And then where that energy was going towards secondary intentions will now come into the practice, be, Energy to arouse a different level of motivation for your life, a different level of intention. But if you don't, if you just kind of stay between the in the purgatory between those two worlds, you know, kind of dabble with the practice and dabble with your life, and kind of so that you're never located in one side or another, um, your your energy will wax and wane, your interest will, and your heart will dry too, because. You aren't really committed and your heart can only fully engage when it's committed. So I can't talk you in to being motivated, but I can suggest you to look into your life and say, you know, what is it that compels me in this life? What is it that I'm really interested in? Where does my Dharma heart get open? Is it what words <coughs> that you hear? Love, contentment, um you know, service? Where Where is there some energy and interest showing forth there where I can infuse a curiosity and investigation and uncovering that really excites me and gets me going? Uh, and so I would leave that up to you, is to find that area of you that sort of ignites your interest and then go for it. And don't stop halfway and hedge. And if you do find yourself kind of wallowing between two worlds really scrutinize the world of of the desire and fear, those worlds of what though we're still kind of lost in, we still want something from life, but we're not sure. You know, we don't really want to commit ourselves to one dimension when we aren't finished with this dimension. And so finish with this dimension. Look at it. See whether it's giving us what we hoped it would. That's all. And if it's not, you can be assured that you won't wallow there, in between those two worlds anymore. That your energy will coalesce around a central theme, a central intention, and you'll drive forward. So, that's what I would suggest.
1: Yes. <laughs> I didn't have an answer
0: for that. So she was uh, she was saying that um, she's uh, working with uh, the principle of not bringing anything extra to the conversation, not bringing the past to a conversation, so that um, she really looks at the conversation anew, right, and deals with it as as current rather than as a past as whether it has had past, um, all the seeds of the past, free of that. <clears throat> and, I mean, it's something that's very important. It's, it's the essence of meditation in action, really. If you start using meditation to, um, to promote yourself, which is the past stepping into the present, and taking a firmer, opinionated stance in where you are, then you're really going counter to the way that we should be moving, which is to be lighter on our feet and more flexible, more able to listen and to learn, to receive life, right? So we go from sort of asserting and influencing life to receiving, uh, listening, learning, and being affected by it. That's the general drift that the Dharma puts us in. It's especially difficult with established relationships because the past comes up so quickly in those mm-hmm. relationships. And so we have to be extraordinarily attentive when we meet another person. In fact, there are forms of, of formal uh, ways to speak and converse together which hold those things in check. Um, for instance, if my wife and I get into discussions where we're not really listening to each other, I'll say, okay, so you tell me, you give me the whole story of what you want to say to me, and I will affirm everything you're saying and and show you that I understand it. So she'll say something, and I will say it back to her as I heard it, and not judging it, not contradicting it, nothing. And then when she's finished, she will hold my, my reaction, and so I will say to her what I'm feeling, and she will reflect back exactly what she hears me saying so that there's no dispute, and I won't let her off the hook, nor she will, will she let me off the hook until she's convinced that I've heard what she said without any distortion. So that makes sure that each of us are heard within that, right? And you can't imagine how quickly the argument ceases when you've both been heard. And it doesn't actually even matter so much whether you come to a resolution, and the resolution... We, we have found is to be um, pretty obvious when both of you have been heard. <clears throat> but it's not so much the resolution as the being heard that is the real um, the, the real healing that takes place within that discussion. Because when you're arguing with somebody what you're trying to do is be heard and they Countering what you're saying with a counter-argument, a counter-opinion, so that there, it's like um, table tennis or something. The ball just keeps coming back at you, right? So try that. And you'll, <coughs> you'll see how amazing that is. But then you have to expand it out. So I use little pointers or have used little pointers in the past. Like when I step into a situation, and instead of directly wanting to influence influence it with my control or my opinions or my way I will hesitate and first receive and understand what has already taken place prior to my entry uh, so that I won't lead with my need to control but lead with my listening to what's actually taking place before I try to control you see so you step into a room and your kids are squabbling and you want, as a parent should come down on top of both of them, right? Instead of understanding what this whole thing is about and then responding from that deeper hearing. But that's also true in business meetings. I mean, it's true in everything. In every situation, before we try to influence, maybe we should try to listen to it and really get a sense of that receiving rather than leaning. And that's just that very subtle shift in, in attitudinal direction really controls the, the, the whole of the Dharma. Doesn't it? And what we're trying to do in our life is to take Dharma principles out into it. So we start getting affected by it. But many of us just like to keep them conceptually in us. You know, suffering, Desire leads to suffering so what does that mean in terms of your actual participation in life what does that mean at the dinner table you know what does that mean uh, when you're driving to work and somebody cuts you off what does that mean in in the actual actions of the day's living experience we don't usually we just keep it kind of theoretical and we have a very nice theoretical understanding of it but it doesn't really change our life we should see our life changing, just as you have mentioned. This should be a changing experience because we're willing now to listen differently. We're willing to release our opinions and actually um, receive others' opinions. We're willing to be more flexible and not hold such a fixed opinion. Right? We're willing to move with our hearts and rather than our heads. And all of that leads to a very different, a very different uh, connection and communion with living, with life. Very different. So I'm hoping that our homework—that's what the homework is meant to do—is to take these, you know, these kind of sweeping principles and make them very practical and down to earth for us. What does it mean? And next week we'll be exploring generosity, right? Now. You know we have well. I won't we even go into But next week we'll be talking about generosity, and that's when we can bring down right into the nitty gritty of our life. Because being generous, and just what I've been speaking to, you have to be receptive. You have to. You, you have to, in order to be generous, you have to have taken in the situation in order to respond to it. Because generosity is in the response that we offer the situation, right? And if it's not going to be, if it's actually going to be a generous response, it needs to have had the sensitivity of actually knowing what the situation needs, how the situation needs to be responded to, rather than just a knee-jerk, right? And that, that's, a generous, that's a generous response as opposed to the same thing. I'm just using different words. So, it's fun to take these words and invite them in our life so that we start seeing their active engagement in them. And each of the paramis, which I hope you uh, get a sense of, each of them have an active expression to play in our life on an ongoing basis. You know, it's, it's like, again, just generosity. <clears throat> you no, know, I mean, one thing we think is giving money or giving gifts, but that's a very superficial form of generosity, the deepest form of generosity is giving your attention. And giving your attention where someone feels connected to you through your attention, you're also giving your understanding. And there's no more precious gift than you can give somebody than your understanding. You see how that and so you just take a principle like this and it's part of what you were talking about is unless you do that, the practice just becomes mechanical. If it's mechanical, it's dry. You know, why would I give my life over to something dry and mechanical? If it's not feeding my life, if I don't see a result in my life, if I don't see this thing changing, becoming more flexible, being open and all of, all in, in expressing itself in a more alive way, if I just see, interpret My meditation in terms of the mechanics of how long I stay with my breath, or other mechanical interpretations, then it's just going to be—it's not going to—it's not going to feed me. It's going to be dry. I'm not going to really have much intention towards it. It's just—it's going to be uh, rather understood very superficially. But now you're bringing it in, and you can see the aliveness in this thing, because your awakening, you think, Wow, this is really interesting, isn't it? And hopefully your husband is feeling the benefit of that as well. You see, because it doesn't stay, the gift doesn't stay with you. The gift just keeps on giving. The gift of Dharma. And now you get juiced up, well this is working. You're not there's no lack of interest in your practice, is there? Okay. You see? There's the difference. Pardon? Yes, Yes, exactly. And there's a readiness in a time w- <coughs> when we can hear the same thing. I hear this all the time from people. I've heard that. I've heard you say that for five years and I just got it. You know? And you think that you haven't really heard it for 5 you years. Know, you've heard it. It just didn't go to the level in which you realized it. At a certain, certain point the dam breaks and there's a realization of what's been said. And you go, my God, this thing really does work. And it can be the simplest of principles. And once the water breaks through the dam, then it just it gushes out all over your life. Floods your life. Very beautifully, actually. But you've got to want that for yourself. If you want just what you have, and you would like to you know, know a little dharma, then you'll be what you are, and you'll know a little dharma. And that will be what you get out of it. Or you're going to throw yourself in the stream. You see? Because I'm interested in people who want to throw themselves in this thing because that's what we're doing here. Well, I'm wasting my time with you if you just want to, like, well, the water's too cold, I'm going to go back home. Well, we've got to get in there, you know. Okay. So, anyone else? (coughs)
1: sir. <coughs> kind of related to the last comment, too. I read how good it felt and how, how liberating it felt. And so I'm wondering if you could comment on, on, on Mudita and also sure. if there's, I, I'm sure there's a, a formal practice to cultivate that.
0: Yeah, uh, Mudita, he's talking about Mudita or the joy for other people's successes. Today was Mudita. If you didn't feel that, where were you? <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean everybody's heart was I mean you just look out over that crowd you feel it in the stands you feel it among the throngs of people tears coming down because something something not only because it was a, a rounding out of the true emancipation proclamation it was a finishing and so you know it was it was it was a it was the ending and everybody comes up with like, everybody Everybody's spirits soar when there is uh, the, the sense of, 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 a, of a prejudice or something that has been we're under a spell, when a spell has been relieved. It's not just for that particular ethnic group. It's for all of us. It feeds all of us. And so, um, but, but, but that sense was much, was much further than just towards any ethnic group. It was also for the whole, it was for the country. It was actually for the world, you know. The whole thing just felt, whoa, just, you know, just the joy of of the absence of pain that we've been under. I can't say it any other way. I mean, that's the way I've been feeling. So you get you get a sense uh, that mudita is the natural expression of heart. Uh, when somebody succeeds, when somebody uh, feels, uh, uh, when somebody uh, whose pain is being alleviated. It doesn't have to be success. It's just that when when the sick get well, you feel good about it, don't you? You know, when somebody passes their exams or whatever, you go, oh, good, great. (laughs) And so I don't really think it needs to be practiced. I think what needs to be paid attention to is where we... Um, are so caught in our own selfishness that we are envious of that where we get caught up in because a natural spring of the heart is to be delighted at somebody's success what I want to do is I, I want to understand when that isn't happening and what's going on in me in that moment that where, where the, the lid is still on where I can't be happy at somebody's success I have to be miserable in myself because somebody succeeded what is that saying about me in that moment you see well, I'm, I'm desperate, aren't I, when I feel that way? I'm feeling a lost, totally inadequate in myself, uh, I can't feel the joy of somebody else's success, that I only feel the envy or jealousy of that. Uh, and, and so the awareness of the pain that I'm expressing in that moment is the practice that's necessary for the arising of mudita because when we start looking at that with any kind of sense of, of scrutiny, uh, it resolves itself very quickly. It doesn't take a long time and the burden of that, of that jealous and envious heart gets removed rel- relatively quickly over time and there is mudita. The removal of the jealousy, the mov- removal of the envy, mudita is there. So it doesn't... It doesn't have to be a force that we practice. It has to be uh, investigated where we lose ourselves within that which keeps us from it. And I like that much better because then mudita isn't homemade. Love is not under your control. You didn't make it happen. And I want to take you out of it. You made it not happen. You didn't make it happen. When you start seeing that you and it not happening are synonymous. (laughs) You start wanting to remove you and have it happen. Because it, life, love, mudita, compassion, all of it happens when you remove yourself. But if you put a weight of practice on yourself to make it come, you'll take responsibility for it. You'll take credit for it. And you will continue to think that, oh, it's working, and it will, because it sneaks in. <coughs> but you won't understand the problem. You won't really understand the problem, which was you, right? So I prefer that, that method rather than using an artificial technique. So she's going through a, some challenging states of mind, <coughs> and uh, she just wants to make sure that her way is the way I'm teaching, which is that you go into those states of mind, and that somehow going into the difficult states of mind is helpful. Oh, as it, it's, 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 uh, it's difficult for us to learn that anything difficult could be helpful. I mean, that's a difficult principle to orient ourselves to, isn't it? That the unpleasant part of life could be helpful, the difficult, the um, where I'm aversive. You know, I just, I just, I'm, I'm, I've lived my life for so many decades. Uh, in one direction and now the Dharma seems to be indicating that there's something healthy sane robust about living it in the opposite and I, I it's no wonder that I hedge my bets there is there and you and you have to it takes a while I mean first you do it because the teacher says or because you read it in a book it takes a while for us to understand how it could be helpful and First you get it in principle and then you get it through action. You get the general principle that um, where we are that that we uh, create our own difficulty by sort of clamping down and turning away. And that when we open up and actually look at something that we also in the very willingness to look and be observant to something the difficulty or the the May not, the unpleasantness may not go, but the problematic fact of it will, could, is alleviated. See, problems and unpleasantness are not the same thing. So if something's unpleasant and I don't like it, I don't want to see it, now I have a problem with it. If I turn to it and I just release the tension of, of contracting around the unpleasant then I'm no longer forced to move from it and I'm allowing that to be a part of my life. There's no problem with it. The problem came in wanting to get it out of my life. And when I no longer want to get it out of my life, it loses its problematic nature. It's pretty obvious. But to learn that, and to learn that in... Inwardly as well as externally so that when we have a problem state of mind like anger or fear or something, jealousy or envy or impatience or whatever, that this is also true at that level of our being so that when there is, say, anger and I don't get distraught by being an angry or the implication of being an angry person, if I just turn to it and accept this state of mind, that I'm free of having to be driven by it or being interpreted, interpreted, either being driven by it or interpreted by it. It doesn't happen. Because when I'm not running from it, there's no sense that it's even something, that, that it, there's a sense that it's happening to me rather than it is me. And it's only problematic when I think it is me. When the anger is me, then I have a problem with my anger. When it's happening, just happening, <coughs> and then and it's there's no personalization of it. It's like a cloud going by. What I don't make a problem with a cloud going by. And I don't make problem with an anger with anger arising. So you have to get that principle down. It's really the principle yeah. of suffer, desire creating suffering, the desire to get out of its way, to have it go away, to you know, abolish it from the face of the earth, the aversion of it, which is a desire or a fear of it, the desire not to have it there, or the fear of having it here, creates the substance the substantial nature of the rub of the problem. Accepting it, allowing it, letting it be just what it is, the problem goes away, and eventually will the state of mind also go away. And it just seems counterintuitive because it takes us out of the picture. What did we do about that? All we did was release the tension associated with something. That's all we ever did. All we ever did was learn that instead of creating more tension to somebody, something and trying to solve the problem, get rid of the problem, get through the problem, wait the problem out, instead of having that level of tension, I release the tension and the problem is solved. But when I release the tension, I release my control over the problem. And that makes me feel impotent. And I don't like feeling impotent, so I clamp down even further to solve the problem in order to keep my sense of self-definition and control And so the problem gets bigger. It doesn't get less. Get the principle down. And then, once you get it theoretically, apply it. Again, unless we bring this into the cells of our being, into the very actions, and we just... Then it will become the way we live. It won't become a theory, an application, like, what's that now? Okay, now what am I supposed to do? Okay, now let's relax. Okay, now what? It won't be like, you know, a school child. It'll become your natural way of living in life. It'll be the natural way that life unfolds around you. What does that mean? You will live with much more ease, without problems. There'll be challenges, but no problems. You'll live with ease and contentment because there won't be the rubs that go throughout your day. And the downside from your perspective is that you won't be as defined problematically all along the way. You won't have the dramas of your life. And therefore, you won't have any sense of purpose and nobility of trying to Make your life—you know—all the difficulties I faced in my life, and I've got—you know—I have pulled myself up by my boots. None of all that goes away, and you just have a problem-free life. I mean, doesn't that make sense? You just want to try that out. <laughs> See, why is it? I'm always interested in why we don't—not why we do. Why we do is obvious, but why don't we? Because unless we understand why we don't, we really don't understand what we're doing, what we need from life in order to survive. Literally, we need something from life in order to survive. Guess what you need from life in order to survive? You need an argument. The argument helps you survive as a person. If you want to sustain yourself, your individual... Nobility, all the things of your accomplishments, your productive, useful sense of me—you need constant problems that you have resolved that show what how you've lived your life so so fulfillingly. So we we get that, and then we get a a meaningful life. That in our terms, we get a meaningful life from that. (coughs) So you got you have to you see. I mean, it's not an automatic. When you start seeing that, which you will, you go, wait a minute. Maybe I do want problems in my life. And maybe I want drama. There'll be a a moment of true hesitation where you'll consider the two roads. And if you're honest, you'll have to face that. I don't know. And... The Buddha says that if you face it honestly and really look at what you're doing to your life by creating problems and what your life could be like without it, there really isn't much of a choice there. It's when we're driven by so much uh, self-ambiguity that we need problems in order to give us some sense of self-definition. And many of us... See, That's why you you can't be nobody until you become somebody. All of you have heard that. The reason is is that unless we have a strong sense of ourselves, we aren't going to come to the end of what a self can, what a self does. We won't want to know the end of what a self offers. Uh, but when you do have a strong sense of yourself, you you see that that isn't any good. It's not worth having. But you can't have that, you can't have that understanding prior to having that sense of, a strong sense of yourself. You see? Because you'll be, you'll be too ambiguous, too fearful, too inadequate, too something, too neurotic, to, to to have been completely formed. And so, that's the reason that we have to go through this. But once you're, I mean, you don't need absolute sanity, believe me, it's not in this chair. But just, I mean, it doesn't take a lot. And the sense of self also builds right along with your practice. But once you have it, you go, this is a drag. (laughs) I mean, this is a a problem here. (laughs) I'm carrying myself around with you because it doesn't let you out of yourself. There's no escaping it. Once you build it, you can't escape it. You've got your mind and that's all you've ever got. You can't get out of it. It's the only mind you'll ever have and you're entrapped within it. And if you want to know what prison is like, that's what it is. And you go, geez. <clears throat> I mean, I was very young. I was probably 12. And I, I looked at my mind and I thought, Jesus, I'm never going to be able to get out of this thing. It's like I'm stuck in here. Every thought's my thought. My I can't, my, my mind is completely shaped by my opinions, I have only this as my governance. There's no way for me to know what anyone else is really feeling. I mean, I really felt imprisoned in the thing. So when we feel that, you know, you... then there's a, a rallying call inwardly. The heart rallies. And what the self tries to do is to find its way out. But there is no way out from the, from the sense of self's perspective it has to give up on itself in order to get out. So it becomes paradoxical. So you, you start trying to find a new way out and you build yourself a, a better mousetrap for yourself. So eventually you find that if you go towards the difficult and face it, you ain't there. And that feels great. and what life comes pouring in. Give it an opportunity and it will meet you. But when we keep turning away from it, how can we ever meet it? Stop turning away from it and go like this. It comes rushing in, of course. It's like a dam that's broken. And we rise right up. and We just move right with it. But we're constantly going to the left, to the right, to the left, to the right, because this is what we don't want and this is what we do. We never meet it on its own terms. It can't get in except on its own terms. And we keep wanting it on our terms. So we say it puts the jack of diamonds and we put the queen of diamonds on top of it.
1: <laughs>
0: and we've got a better hand than it has because we can think anything and it only plays one suit. So it plays what it plays and we. I got a better idea for it than that, right? And so we just, we just keep trumping it. And then finally you throw in your deck, because it doesn't work that way. And then you say, two of diamonds, all right, two of diamonds, that's it. <laughs> that's the way it works.
1: <laughs> Any other questions? <laughs>
0: Mind start clicking, fruit. say that again. Mind start Yeah, <laughs> I mean you're talking about more subtle practice and what she's saying is that <coughs> sometimes when you face something and you're also facing the content of that story when you're facing a difficulty, a difficulty isn't just um, a, a, um, a physical response, it's often a psych- it's also a psychological response so it has a story associated with that difficulty. So when you face that, what you're doing is ending the story that has accompanied that experience as well. And you're opening that story up to being not believed. Really, right? So, let us say we face patterns of intimacy in ourselves. We have a history in which we have been scarred in our attempts to be intimate. So, we're with our loved one and we see that edge and we just stay right there. See, this isn't easy stuff. I didn't say that the difficult was easy. I said it's difficult. So you stay there and you feel you feel that edge and you want, every cell in your body wants to get the hell out of there. That's how it feels. Because historically, this is a dangerous place to be. I have been manipulated in my intimacy. I have been abused. I have been whatever. But, I'm also aware enough to know that unless I hold this difficult state, it will perpetuate itself if I turn away. So I hold it. And I'm like freaking out inside. I'm fearful. And if I have a good partner or somebody who I can trust, a therapist, I can have another steadying pair of eyes that allows me to go through this sufficiently so that that first wave of Story and experience has washed through me. That does not mean that the story has ended. That just means that the first wave, perhaps the biggest wave of of it all, has kind of washed through and I've steadied myself and I'm on the other side. I'm also exploring now what it feels like in an area that I have never known before. It's scary. I'm at risk. I'm not sure what to do. I don't know this side of the fence. I only know the other side of the fence and I'm trying to learn and there's and, and a lot is happening. I'm, there's a steep learning curve, and if I'm not careful, I will make it it'd be so, you know, sweat bearing difficult. I want to run back. So I also have to look to see what I'm getting out of this. You know, it's not all bad. It's kind of interesting over here, and I'm not being forced by my fear. And there's an openness, and I'm in a deeper level of communication than I've ever had with this partner of mine. And I'm on new grounds, and yes, it's not secure, but there is a payoff here that I also have to be aware of. Now, the relationship breaks up, blah, blah, blah. I'm in a new relationship, I'm there again, and back comes the story. It has not absolved because of one wave. In fact, it can get more subtle. Now it starts picking up more of the fear response, the abuse response that happened prior to that one memory when I was in the relationship before now it even gets more subtle and the fear gets see it's and but I hold my course again because now I've seen the value of going through it and so it feeds on that prior um, action the cells of our body have learned the benefit of of stepping over the over the fence of fear and you know I do, and now it's a little bit easier, not much. one percent less difficult. But if you do that a hundred times, you, you're down to zero percent difficult. What are you, are you going to give up on it? You've, I did it once. I don't want to ever do it again. Great, you're right back on the other side of the fence, very safe and cut off. You see, this is a never ending, you just do it when it comes, you skill do it. There's only one way we go here. We're either we're either absolving this conditioning or we're adding to it. And the content will always find justifications to leave. Because that's what fear does. It says if you stay here, the worst thing that you can possibly conceive will happen. And you stay there and the worst thing doesn't happen. But over time, as we open to this, and it's not a long time, some of these things can get resolved. And so, then it becomes just like little little um, ripples. No longer are there tsunami waves that are hitting us or even... Um, you know, surfing waves are just little ripples. And many of the many of the historical problems I had when I was young in the practice maintain as ripples to this day. A subtle fear, a like a, a wanting to jump out of my skin. But it's nothing. Not when you've set through everything else before that. And not only have you done it to that story, but you've done it to every one of your stories. And what happens at some point is that the belief in the story is broken. Before, you were working with the story, kind of half-believing it and just reconditioning your way out of it. But at some point, it gets broken. Your belief in words gets broken, snapped like a twig you do not believe the mind and then the mind may be Ugh, but nothing move. not you there's no n- there's no need to move no desire to move because you don't believe you only believe in now there there comes such a time when it's so obvious that now holds everything and the story holds nothing it doesn't hold It it doesn't hold anything. It holds a remembrance of something that happened X number of X time ago. But that holds... That's nothing. That's not even something. That's nothing compared to now. You see, and when you sit in now... And you just you're sitting at the end and everything that comes through you, all the story just goes right over the cliff. It comes through you and goes right over the cliff. Because it's there's no there's no movement to encourage it. It's like wind an open door, like wind blowing through an open door. And there's only, there's only now. <clears throat> I mean, wh- there's always only been now. Even when I believed in then, then was being held now. And now I know then is being held now, so I don't even believe in then anymore. So then has no meaning to me. It used to because I used to believe in a then, a now, and a then, maybe. But I don't believe in the maybe, and I don't believe in the then because that's all happening now. And then when I know that, then the wind just blows through the door. That's how it works.
1: <laughs> Thank you all. <laughs> Thank you for listening.